Let me say a prayer, and we're going to jump into a brand new series, but let me pray for us as we start. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for all that you are and all that you do, and I pray that as you yourself spoke to the prophet Isaiah, come let us reason together. I pray that you'd open our minds, you'd open our hearts as we dive into your word, and I pray that you would transform us by it. We thank you for all that we have, and we lift up to you all our cares and concerns and know that you will indeed be with us. In Christ's name, amen. We are starting something a little bit different. We have typically done just fairly short series. We're going to do a semester's worth of lessons, and it's a series called Beginnings and Endings. I want to study the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation back to back. And it'll take us through this semester. And I think you're going to find just really powerful connections happening. I'm going to look at the beginning and the ending of the Bible. And some powerful connections are going to come about. Because I think it'll close the loop on some things in the scripture. As usual, text your questions in during class. Because we'd like to make sure we're answering your questions. We'll do this series not jumping back and forth between Genesis and Revelation. We'll go through Genesis, some of the great stories in Genesis, and we'll go through Revelation, and as we do, the connections will start happening in a really uh, powerful way. We are fundamentally, as people, wired to ask the big questions of life. The book of Genesis and the book of Revelation are fundamentally there to answer the big questions of life. Questions like this. We ask all human beings throughout all time, if you look at literature, you look at you know, the various pagan religions, they're all fundamentally trying to answer a question like this. Where did all of this come from? And more personally and specifically, how did I get here? That's fundamentally what the book of Genesis talks about. It talks about some other things, but it's going to explain how did this all come about and what does that mean to me? We also ask the question, where is this all going? What happens to me when I die? Is this all there is? Is there meaning in my life? What's going to be out there in the future? Most of our anxiety comes from a fear or an uncertainty about what's coming next, whether it's in our life or after our life. Secular psychologists would tell us that one of the most fundamental fears of humanity is the fear of death, the fear of that great unknown, the fear of the ultimate separation of us from everything that we have known. And we ask that question, where is this all going? And what is going to happen to me? both in my life and after I die? And then finally, what does this all mean? Is there any purpose in my life? Do I matter? Am I just a cog in a great machine? Am I just an accident that's here to, uh, as Thomas Hobbes said in the Middle Ages, commenting on life in that era, he said, life is nasty, brutish, and fortunately it's short. And you can understand, uh, that's kind of a pessimistic view. I, I doubt he was a lot of fun at parties. But you understand the idea is, what does this all mean? Is there any purpose in my life? Those are the questions that we're going to answer. Because those are the questions that the Bible answers. Where did this all come from? How did I get here? Is something that Genesis wants to talk about. Where is this all going? How does it end? 
What happens to me after I die? Or it was one of the things that the book of Revelation wants to talk about. And you put those two together, and you really get a satisfactory answer to the question, what does this all mean? What is my purpose in life? Taking these two bookends, if you will, of the Bible and putting them together is going to answer some of the really most profound questions that we have. We're going to start with a study of Genesis. Genesis is essentially, I'm really excited to talk about this, I hope as you're excited to hear about it, because Genesis is really just a book of stories. Now, I don't mean stories as in made-up stories, fairy tale stories, children's stories, stories to entertain you. These are true stories, but they're told in the form of a narrative, of a story. It's not so much a thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. It's not like reading uh, you know, the phone book and just trying to get a lot of data. It's really the story of what happened and what that means for you and me. The book of Genesis is a book of great stories. It's also a book about beginnings. Genesis, the very word, means beginning. And so it's a book of beginnings. It's the beginning of the world. It's the beginning of humanity, the beginning of God's chosen people. It's actually the beginning of the New Testament. It's the beginning of everything that's going to happen in Jesus' ministry. Jesus appears in the book of Genesis, and what you see in the book of Genesis is going to tie together why Jesus is here and what Jesus is doing. It's a beginning of everything that comes after it. This first great story in Genesis, and that's what we're going to talk about in this lesson, is we're going to begin with the first great story. It's a short story. The first great story goes from Genesis 1-1, to Genesis 2-3. So it's just a little more than a chapter. In your Bibles, it's not even a full page. But that succinct little story tells us the story of the beginning of everything, how things got here, how things came about. That great story, I'm not going to read you the entire story, uh, and we'll refer to certain pieces of it, but I just want to start with those great words that you probably are all familiar with. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was fluttering or hovering over the waters. And then it goes on to tell over a period of six days, and it was evening and it was morning the first day. And it begins to tell of this God's creative action, and God saw that it was good. And then on the seventh day... God rests, and you, you see the story ending in chapter 2, verse 3, with this beautiful harmony and this really beautiful closure about this creation. Just a short, simple story. But this creation story can be understood in a couple of ways, and I want to talk about really two ways to, to look at this story. I'd like to talk about the science of creation and the theology of creation. These are two ideas that tend to be, in our culture, very much in conflict. And I want to put them in their proper places for us. I want us to have a sense of closure at the end of this lesson about how do science and theology come together? How do they collide and what does it create in this story of creation? And then finally, I'd like to close with, basically, modern lessons from an ancient story. What does this story mean for me? I think you're going to realize that this, this story already separates you in a profound way from most of the people who have ever lived in history and most of the people that live in our world today. 
So that's what we're going to talk about, the science, the theology, and then what does that mean for us. Looking at the creation story as science is basically saying this, that cre the creation story in Genesis is a statement about the world and how it came about. Looking at the creation story from the point of view of science is basically saying this is a story about the world and how it came about. Christians have had a variety of ways of looking at this story from a scientific point of view, and there's been a lot of friction over this, not only amongst Christians about what's the right way to understand this, but between Christians and secular thinkers, you know, the secular naturalist scientists of our day. And let's talk about that a little bit. The first view, and I'm going to summarize this into two major views and one interesting dark horse kind of a view. The first is, in reading these six days of creation, some understand this as being six 24-hour days of creation and that the earth itself, the story of the earth from then till now is contained inside this story and consequently draw the conclusion that this story happened between six and 10,000 years ago. And it's just labeled the young earth view of creation. And it's sometimes referred to, I, I hate to use this word, but it's often referred to as a literal understanding. It's not so much literal as it is understanding some of these uh, passages in specific ways, but in very natural ways. In other words, there are six days of creation. Our day now is 24 hours long. That's six days. That's how long it took to create the universe and everything that happened in between, all the way from the creation of light to the creation of human beings. And so this young earth idea is that the earth is somewhere between six and 10,000 years old. This view does not mesh well with current scientific thinking about how the universe came about. Remember, looking at this as the science of creation, it's, we, we understand it as a statement about creation and how it came about. This is not a view that's very compatible with the thinking of our day in terms of where the universe came from. Second view is called the old earth. There's not a lot of creativity in the names here, but the old earth view. That takes the view that those six days of creation were ages or eras of time and not necessarily 24-hour days. Consequently, the thinking is it's comfortable with the current thinking today that the universe is about 13.7 billion years old. Let's call it 14 billion years. What's 300 million years or so amongst friends, right? so that the universe is about 14 billion years old. That's what current thinking, current theorizing is, is that that's approximately how long it appears that the universe has been around. And so an old Earth, you would say, these things happened, and they happened in the way that the creation story tells us, but the timetable is very strung out. The old Earth view also tends to want to look at this story and harmonize it more with current thinking by saying that instead of God simply creating it instantaneously happening, that God created in such a way that it came about over time, both in terms of the physical universe, 
is when it says, you know, God created the earth, the planets. Well, that took many, 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 many billions of years for gases and matter to coalesce and then to become compact and stars to form. And so that statement may have taken billions of years to happen. Old earth tends to want to look at the creation of life and see it not as an instantaneous event, but as an event that took a process of time and might in some ways be consistent with an evolutionary idea, which is, is the current popular thinking on how life came about. So the old earth view, under, it's a Christian view in that it understands God as creator and that without God this doesn't happen, but it is a view that accommodates some of the current thinking by not requiring the language of Genesis 1 to be so narrow. That makes sense? Those are both Christian ideas, but they're very different ideas, and there's a lot of disagreement amongst them. The third idea, and I mention this only because it's just really kind of curious. It's really interesting. It's called the gap theory. This is what you get if you can't decide and you want the best of both worlds. Because the gap theory says there's a big gap of time between Genesis 1, verse 1, and verse 2. And when you've read that, you probably never even considered that possibility. Let me remind you what they say. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. Now wait many, 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 many billions of years. So he created the universe, and billions of years go by, and then verse 2 happens. And God looked on it and saw that it was formless and void, and he decided to start populating things and making things happen, right? And so those next six days happen. It's a way to say that the universe is very, very old, and the earth is very, very old, but the current state of the earth is not very old, right? And that's kind of a middle course between the two by postulating there's a lot of time that, that might have passed between verse 1 and verse 2. So fundamentally, and I'm not trying to caricature these ideas, but young earth basically says science needs to fit into the creation account and harmonize with Genesis 1. Old earth says Genesis 1 can be made to harmonize with current scientific thinking about, or theories, about the way the universe came about. And the gap theory says, hey, can't we all just be friends? You know, I'll give you a little bit of each, and, and we're going to have some of the other. Those are fundamentally, painting with a pretty broad brush, the ways that Christians have looked at Genesis 1 in terms of explaining how the world came about, is the science of creation. So let me ask the question before we leave this uh, area, because... We can talk about as much of this as you want, but actually the theology of creation is probably more significant for us. But this is important, and that you may have a number of questions about this, and if so, we'll pause and talk about it. But let me just say, what must Christians believe about this? What is Christian belief about the science of creation, and what is non-Christian belief about the science of creation? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. The young earth and old earth views are both Christian views of creation. They may be wrong, because I know some of you are going, whoa, whoa, now just wait a minute. You know, old earth is not consistent with the scriptures, or young earth doesn't make sense. 
I'm not telling you that they're necessarily both right. I'm telling you that they are both Christian in this understanding is that they both would agree that God created the heavens and the earth. They would both understand God as that intelligent force, that intelligent personal force, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus, Holy Spirit, and God the Father. In other words, that God, that personality, is the one who creates it. And fundamentally, young earth and old earth, fundamentally, are an argument about how God chose to go about doing it. It's a little more complicated than that, but fundamentally, those are both Christian views. What are not Christian views? The views that are not Christian fall into two big categories. One of them are what I call deist views, meaning there's some kind of creator or creative principle or designer who kicked this off and retreated and allowed, quote, natural forces to completely work. And the second camp is even, even farther away. It's called naturalism. It's the basis for all modern scientific thought. It's philosophically based on naturalism, and it simply says there is no such thing that's possible as anything beyond what you see. As Carl Sagan is famous for saying uh, before he died, uh, a couple of decades ago, the universe is all that ever was, and it's all that there is. Unfortunately, even scientists no longer agree with that, but I'm sorry, Carl. But basically, that's the idea of naturalism, is that everything you see, that's all there is, that's all there's ever been. You must explain the existence of everything based on the interaction of what's here. There's nothing beyond what you can see. That's not a Christian idea. Deism, that there's nothing more than a and a creative force or an intelligent design is not an inherently Christian idea. Christian ideas have a personal, specific God with a, per, a real, specific reason to create. Well, let me pause there for a second because that's probably stirred the nest a little bit and see what areas you'd like to clarify. But painting with a pretty broad brush, that's how Christians have looked at this story as science. Questions? Okay, um, was Adam the first man or just the first in the plan of salvation? Was Adam the first man or just the first in the plan of salvation? And this is going to depend on your reading of this passage. Uh, traditionally, I mean, universally traditionally, people understand Adam literally as the first human being that God created exactly the way it says that he created him. And we'll look at that in just a minute. But exactly the way he created them. Those who want to understand Genesis not as even remotely scientific, as more mythic. In other words, this isn't true in any realistic sense. It's simply a story, not a true story, but a mythic story to explain some ideas to you would perhaps understand then that Adam is uh, a representative of humanity, not necessarily a real individual being. So it's going to depend on how you look at it. The preponderance of tradition, I mean far, far, far in a way, is that Adam is a real person. He really is the first person. 
uh, it's considered to be you know, far, far more liberal understanding of the scripture to say it's not specifically true, it's simply a story to explain the idea of humanity to us. Is a day for the Lord the same as a thousand years to man? Yeah, let's talk about this idea, the Hebrew word yom, which is day. And it's the word translated day. It's the usual word for day. It's not a funky word. It's not unusual in any, in any way. So the fundamental disagreement, uh, technically speaking, in young earth, old earth, is getting around this idea of how long is a day. So you have the passage in Peter in New Testament, you also have in the Old Testament, but a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And the point being is that time for God, who is an eternal being, is not the same as time for us, who in this form are finite beings. We live in a finite world, world within. So the idea of God processes time very differently than we do. And so that's a way of saying that. Well, but if you take it kind of literally, it does introduce the idea that, wait a minute, if we're talking about God's days versus ours, who's to say it has to be a 24-hour day? Why then could it not simply be some era or age or non-24-hour period of time. It's simply some uniform time when God accomplished something. Does that make sense? In other words, does it have to be 24 hours? Now, the rebuttal to that will be everywhere in Scripture that you see the word yom with a number, you know, it means a 24-hour day. Could it mean something different in this passage? Well, possibly, but there's not really a basis for that. And hence, you have the basis here for a really good dinner table argument for years in your family there as does this need to be a 24-hour day or not? And that's a question of do you want to take it the way the word is typically used or do we want to understand it as maybe looking at it from God's perspective? And hence you can see why people can, can look at this same story and want to understand it in a couple of different time frames. Good question. Can you discuss the genre of the literature of Genesis 1 and what that may tell us of the intent? Yeah, good question. Uh, the, literature, the, the genre of the entire book of Genesis is historical, but not historical in the sense that you and I think about it. And that doesn't make it wrong or different. On one hand, you have us looking at Genesis requiring it to be a very factual history like we understand history. What happened on what day and who did what to tomb and when did they do it? By the way, modern history isn't even that way either, frankly. Or on the other extreme, it's only historical in that it's just trying to convey some general ideas to you. None of these things actually happened. That's called a myth. And so those are kind of the two extremes. Genesis falls into the middle. Genesis is not intended to be a myth like other early creation stories. It has some similarities in genre to some of the uh, ancient Near Eastern creation stories. Somebody's probably asked about that. Let me just cover that and tell you. It has some interesting parallels with other ancient Near Eastern stories, the Babylonian epics, etc. It has hugely striking differences from it. It is very clearly does not think of itself as a creation myth. It thinks of itself as the true story of creation. So it wants to be more history than myth. Nevertheless, you have to ask the question, is it trying to be a physics textbook as we understand physics textbook? It absolutely, clearly is not. 
So I would say the genre is not mythic. I would say the genre is narrative, but it clearly leaves out a lot of details. And when we get to the theology of the creation story, we're going to look at the genre and say, what does this story say is important? Because I'm going to argue that I'm not going to tell you there's no science in Genesis, creation story. I'm just going to tell you that's not primarily what it wants to be. It's clearly not intended to tell you everything you want to know about how the world came about. So neither myth nor history as we understand it. Good question. Okay, I'm going to combine a couple questions. I hope I, I keep the intent. How important is creation from nothing to Christian ideology or theology? The idea that earth was without form and was void, does that mean it could have been a big hunk of dirt hanging in space? Or are we tied to the idea that it's creation from nothing? Ex nihilo. That's a really great question. I'll give you the really short answer, but that's just fascinating. Neither the Jewish sages nor Christian thinkers can really insist on creation out of nothing. I'm not telling you that didn't happen. Don't misunderstand me. But this text does not insist on that. When it says... God created the heavens and the earth. There's nothing in that verb, bara. It's a very unique verb, by the way. Uh, if I don't mention this later, let me mention it now. That word in Hebrew for created is only used when it says God created. It's not used when it says Terry created something. It's unique to God. So it is a very unique word, meaning God created. He made something only he could create, and it's unique and it's special. But it does not carry the sense, necessarily carry the sense that he created something out of absolutely nothing. It can be understood to mean, and this has, by the way, generally never been a big issue. It can be easily understood to mean that God took something that was there and did something with it. Does that make sense? It can be understood that way. That's never been a big, big issue because none of the people who understand it that way would say, great, then God didn't really start everything in the beginning. That's not really a Christian understanding. But yes, the grammar of the language will accommodate the understanding that God did something with something that was there. That doesn't mean he didn't create it. It just means this story starts at this place. It also is comfortable accommodating the understanding. It just simply doesn't take the time and effort to make this entirely clear. It's obviously not important to the Genesis story, but it's also possible that God created means he really did create it out of nothing. So I'm not arguing that it can't be. I'm just telling you the grammar will not allow us to insist that it has to mean that. Fascinating question. And, and that is not a necessary concept for Christian theology. It isn't a necessary... Now, when we get to the theology, you're gonna, you'll get to the point, the question is, is that necessary? Is creation out of nothing necessary? It is traditional understanding. I don't want you to say, Terry, you're a heretic. I may be, but not on this issue. It's, it's a traditional understanding, but the text doesn't bear that insistence on it. In other words, I don't see how things get here without God creating it out of nothing. It just may not be that's where this story picks up. Does that make sense? So it is not essential to the theological understanding simply because Genesis... Doesn't, take, doesn't care enough about it to make that explicitly clear because it's not important enough. It's not the main thing that Genesis wants to talk about. I'm really comfortable with either way you see it as long as you understand that God created it and it was unique and he is the only one that can create it. 
Yeah, good question. Yeah, we have time for another one if you have. Okay. Um, young Earth theory assumes that the Earth has always revolved in a 24-hour period. Carbon dating assumes that carbon <coughs> ratios are unchanging. We see the Earth spinning on its axis faster every year due to collapse under gravity. Radio carbon to carbon ratio co continues to increase. So is it possible that um, there's a fourth view that a day during creation was much longer since things have changed from age to age? And is it possible that there was a pre-Adamite race? Yeah, that's two good questions. Let me lump that together into a short answer. I'll give you an answer. Because it's, it's a great question. And by the way, there's been a lot of work done by Christian thinkers who want uh, what's called a syncretism, who want to harmonize the idea of, well, I don't really want an atheistic scientific view, but I'm really wrestling with the whole six 24-hour day views. Maybe scientifically speaking... And there are some great books out there about this, right? Is that a day, how could it possibly be 24 hours on the first day? There's nothing there. So it's an attempt to harmonize those two things. And here's the one caution I would give you about that. Is Genesis doesn't care if you harmonize it with science. Fundamentally, Genesis does not care about that. If you do, great, have at it, try to harmonize those two things. It's not that Genesis is unscientific, it simply doesn't care to cater to any point of view. And that's actually incredibly wise. Let me give you a short story about science for just a minute. I'm very pro-science. Christians should make the world's best scientists because anything you want to do, go find out anything you want about this creation, you will find God at the end of it. So have at it. I think Christians should be science. And my training is in scientific fields. I think it's a great thing for us. But let's understand its limitations. 50 years ago, all the reputable scientists in this world, all the smartest people in the world, thought that the world had existed forever. That is not what you've been taught. That is not what they think today. But 50 years ago, everybody thought the universe was eternal. It had no beginning. And then along in the 50s and 60s, there came this idea that, you know what, wait a minute, something that had been observed that the universe appears to be expanding then somebody got the bright idea that, hey, wait a minute, if it's expanding, what if you go back in time, it must have been contracting, and if you go far enough back in time, 13.7 billion years, it started. It wasn't a universe, it was just a big old ball of stuff, right? And kind of like what's in your dryer vent. You know, it's just really dense ball of stuff. And so... What must have happened 13.7 billion years ago is this ball of stuff must have exploded, and that's why it's expanding. Fred Hoyle said, oh, like a big old bang. He didn't believe it, but he termed it. He said, oh, like a big bang, and they go, love that. That's a good term. We'll call it the big bang theory. Then uh, Stephen Hawking, Roger Penrose, movie out about Stephen Hawking, now come along and solve some mathematical problems. Just leave it at that. They solve some mathematical problems and make it to where it is now the accepted consensus that it had a beginning. But you know what? That made scientists very unhappy. They much preferred a universe that never had a beginning than one that apparently began because that left you hanging with two really awkward questions. Where did the big ball of stuff come from? And who made that? Right? 
awkward, awkward question. Scientists today would love to get rid of the Big Bang. And in fact, scientific thinking today, which has gone beyond science to very non-scientific thinking, fascinating, but very much in the realm of metaphysics and religion, is how can we get rid of the Big Bang and somehow find something before it? So the reason I tell you that is, is it's within reasonable memory of a time when scientists did not think the way they think now. That's why, and I'm not knocking science for that, good science ought to change the way it thinks as it finds new data. But my point is, is Genesis is too smart to try too hard to fit into science. Because if you fit Genesis in the Big Bang right now, that wouldn't have worked 60 years ago, and it probably won't work 60 years from now. So enough said about the science, but there are many efforts, and very reasonable and very interesting, of how science, scientific thinking today might harmonize better than we think with the creation story, and that's possible. But the Genesis account doesn't care. In fact, what the Genesis account cares about much, much more is the theology of creation. If the science of creation is concerned with the question of this is a statement about the world and how it came about, the theology of creation says this story is a statement about God and what he is about. You see the difference? It's not that it's unscientific, that it doesn't speak something scientific. It simply speaks more than that. And therein lies a lot of our confusion, is we say, if it's a science text, it needs to have more information. But the point is, it's not just a science text. And it's literally less than one page. It's brilliant. How could you pack this much information in that? We can't pack that much information into it. So as a theology, as a story about God and what he is about, what does it tell us? Let's take a look. First, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Earth was formless and empty, darkness over the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the darkness. Two really key ideas here that Genesis desperately wants to tell you about God. And this is the part that matters, by the way. No matter what you think about the science of creation, it makes absolutely no difference to how you're going to go live tomorrow. The theology of creation makes all the difference in the world about how you're going to live tomorrow. So if you have to go to the restroom right now, it's not a good choice because we're going to talk about the part that affects what you're going to do tomorrow. This basically says, and I'm going to give you a statement here, you're going to go, that's not terribly profound, but it is in its impact, is that God exists. There is this creator called God. He exists and he has acted. In other words, in that simple phrase, it basically says, in a more succinct way than you or I could ever have done, is that's how things got here. That's a short answer to a complicated question. There's this being, this personality called God. He exists and he created. He acted. That's how things got here. But not only that, this six days, you begin with something that's formless and void, or formless and empty is what the NIV says. Let me tell you what that is. There's chaos and there's nothing interesting there. It's chaotic and nothing interesting, much like parts of West Texas, frankly. <laughs> no offense to those of you from there, but it's chaotic and it's basically empty. So what does it take? Now you go through the six days of creation. What actually happens? We're not talking about the science of that. Now we're talking about, you're going to tell me something about God. I'm going to tell you that he exists and that he's acted, and that's how you got here. But I'm also going to tell you, it says, that things tend toward chaos 
and meaninglessness, emptiness. That's what the earth was. And in six days, what does God do? Day one through three, read the story this way. What's it telling me about God? In days one through three, God takes the chaos and brings order to it. Read the story as a theology, as a story not about the world and how it came into being, but a story about God and what am I going to tell you about him. He exists, he acted, and he took chaos and made order out of it. Science completely agrees with that statement. Let me pause there for just a second. He made order out of it. That uh, the physical constants, let's just skip into the realm of science now, with, with, they aren't going to agree with God, but they're going to agree with this. This universe is very, very orderly, extremely well-ordered. In fact, there are, and I'm just going to, I'm not going to tell you about 34, but there, there are 34 physical constants in physics that if they're even the tiniest bit off, this place doesn't exist. The four major forces, the strong and weak nuclear forces, uh, the gravitational constant, and the electromagnetic force are considered today by science to be the four major forces. If any of those are slightly off, it radically changes the dynamics, the balance between gravity and electromagnetism, and things don't exist anymore. If the gravitational force constant were just a little bit different, if it's too much, then stars burn too fast and they die. If it's too little, they never form. In other words, it's finely tuned. There are so many of these constants. Another is the ratio of the number of protons to the number of electrons in the universe. If it's larger, then electromagnetism will be stronger than gravity. If that happens, stars don't form. If it's smaller, then they don't form for a different reason. In other words, those two have to be exactly in balance, that ratio. Uh, the expansion rate of the universe, that's interesting. Not did it blow up, and this is if you're big bang theorists, not did it blow up, but how fast did it blow up? If it blows up too fast or any faster than it is now, galaxies can't form. It's expanding too quickly. If it blew up and then a little slower than it is, any slower than it is, it actually collapses back in on itself. It's finely tuned. There's, there's just constant after constant. And you'll read scientists who come to realize that, you know, this place sure looks a lot like it was tuned. It was designed. And that's why you'll see this, uh, this intelligent design idea gaining way. I mean, it gets a lot of bad press about being a Christian thing. Intelligent design is not Christian. It's deist. It's closer to Christianity, but it basically just acknowledges the fact that this place looks like it's tuned like a watch. It just couldn't exist any other way. So God creates order out of chaos. But he also, days four through six, he deals with the emptiness problem. And he fills it up, and you get all the life. There are 200 physical constants const, uh, in the universe, and this is a secular idea, that have to be perfect for life to happen. If you think about how many gazillions, that's not a scientific term, but it's a lot, of planets are estimated to be in the universe, and you think, hey, there's gotta be other life out there, but the more you look at the number of things that have to be exactly perfectly right, now scientists think, when, when I was a kid watching sci-fi, the real thinking was, there's probably extraterrestrial life out there, because there's so many planets 
that there's got to be over a trillion of them that have, statistically, that have the possibility, like Earth, to have life. That is not what people think today. Now they go, wait a minute, yeah, just all things being equal, but there are so many tiny parameters that have to be exactly right that there's kind of a doubt that there actually could be another, that maybe Earth really is unique out of all the trillions and trillions of planets. Do you understand how that thinking has changed? Because it is so finely tuned. That secular thinking is very much in agreement with the theology of Genesis. What's Genesis saying? God exists and he acts and he took chaos and made order and he took emptiness and he filled it with purpose. He filled it with life. So that's one of the key things. There's another idea, and I want you to hold this thought because in our next lesson it's going to become really important. But another thing about God, not only does he exist and he acts, and he acts in a way with great order, is there's harmony. If you think about the universe, very harmonious. The mathematics of the universe is beautiful. The physics of the universe is just amazing. Think about the anatomy of a cell, you know, the complexity of the brain. Everywhere we look, we find this is so finely balanced, it couldn't work any other way. It's just so finely tuned. There's a harmony in the universe, and there's a harmony in life. Science testifies to that harmony. They're going to disagree about how it got here, but it's harmonious. God is a God of harmony and order, and that's an important idea. Genesis wants to tell us that. Genesis wants to tell us something else. And God said, let there be light, and there was light as it goes on. Did you notice something really profound? There are a lot of things to be said here, but theologically, God spoke things into existence. He didn't think. It could have just as easily said, God had a thought and the world came into being. That could happen, right? But it doesn't. God speaks the world into being. God immediately establishes himself as a being who relates, who reveals, who communicates. The idea of speaking implies some kind of communication. In fact, it's no... It's no coincidence that God speaks the world into existence. And then in John chapter 1 in the New Testament, what does he say? In the beginning was the Word. Oh, the Word. Now, that's an interesting idea, isn't it? In the beginning was a Word, and that's Jesus. He is the expression of God. It's fascinating that that word is used, the idea of a word, not a thought. In the beginning was an idea, and that idea was Jesus. No, in the beginning was a word. The, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did, what do we call that? That's the word of God. It's the revelation, the revealing of God. Do you see the connection there? God is unique. Genesis desperately wants you to understand that God is a God who reveals, who communicates. God is a God who has personal. And here's another powerful idea, is that God's words alter reality. And let me twist that a little. And the word of God alters reality. Just like God's words literally bring into being the reality that we have, the gospel in the New Testament, and we'll talk about this some more later, that word also alters your and my reality. We are changed by the word of God, just like God does his transformation through a word, a communication, a revelation. That's a powerful theological idea. Genesis really wants to tell us that. 
One more thing. Then finally, the creation of humanity. God said, let us make man in our image. This is something special in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And again, I told you, this word created is only used with God. This Hebrew word, there are other words for everywhere else you're going to see it. This is only used for God. God made something unique and something special, something that can't be made another way. If you're a scientist and you want to clone life, that's cool. But if you want to impress me, you make it out of nothing. That's impressive. In other words, that's what Genesis is saying. You may be able to do many things to manipulate your environment. In fact, in our next story, where God puts us in the garden, he's going to tell us, go manipulate this world I have made. But only God created it. But he made us in a very unique way. The theology of Genesis, and you can see Genesis comes alive in this sense. It's not that it's not trying to tell you some science. It's just that it has far more profound things to say theologically. That's why the story is written the way the story is written because it's primarily there, not only, but primarily there to tell you about God and what he's about. And the implications of that are profound for you and me. We can argue about young earth and old earth all day long, and that's very interesting, and I'm I'm all for God's people reasoning together, that's interesting. But when you get to the theology of God, you realize, oh my goodness, Genesis is a treasure trove. There's a God who acts, and he acts in a way that's orderly, and he's a God who apparently values harmony and complexity and this beautiful balance. This same God has chosen to speak, to communicate, to reveal. He's a relational God, not just a far-off thinker who made this place, spun it, and said, let's go. He begins to speak and to create and reveal in that way. And then thirdly, he did something special with you and me. That's what the creation story wants to tell you. That is primarily what Genesis creation story is about. Now that makes a difference in your and my life. And here's how it makes a difference in our life. Modern lessons. That truth literally will, it really can transform the way you and I live. Uh, First is God created me intentionally and uniquely in his image. I mean, think about it. That's what it's it's trying to say. I'm a big believer. You'll hear me say this a lot. Let the Bible be what it wants to be and let it say what it wants to say. And I'm not telling you that it doesn't want to say some things about how the earth came about, but it profoundly wants to say some things to you about God and the implications for you. There is a God. He did create it. It's intentional, and you are unique. Most of the people that you know do not actually think that. None of the deists, none of the naturalists actually think that. If you are a Darwinian evolutionist, you vehemently disagree with this. Not just the God part, that's the small part, but that you were created intentionally and uniquely. If you are the product, if this universe is the product of, quote, natural forces, in other words, thoughtless, unintentional interactions that happen to create what we have created. And particularly with life, you are the product of random mutations. You are neither intentional nor are you unique. And fundamentally, you do not matter. 
It is, it's extremely important, uh, uh, difficult to find meaning in that kind of worldview. Genesis immediately, at the very beginning of the Bible says, God says, I absolutely disagree with that. You were created, you are intentional, and you are unique. Profound idea. God loves you and designed you to live in harmony. This God cared. You are created uniquely. He could have just created us like every other creature. But with us, he breathes his, he's literally, you see again the speaking, he breathes his spirit into humanity. He loves us, he designed us in a harmonious way. You're going to say, Terry, my life is not very harmonious. Genesis wants to talk about that too in the next couple of stories that we look at. But that's the way you and I were created. This is what, these are the implications of what Genesis wants to say. And your life matters. My life matters. I have an origin, I have a purpose, and I have a destination. This simple little story is trying to communicate to you some things about God that have profound implications about you and me. And here's my contention. I know you're all sitting there intellectually saying, I believe that. And let, let me just risk offending you. No, you really don't. Because if you and I live like we believe that, it's going to transform our lives. Okay, so I exaggerated. Maybe you really do believe it. But I'm telling you, you, we've got to make that transition from an intellectual ascent to my experiential reality. Do I really get up every day and say, God made me. I am intentional. I am unique. He loves me. His plan for me is to live in harmony with him. And my life matters. There is a purpose to what's going on. You start every day actually believing that, and you become a lot less of a people pleaser. You become a whole lot less influenced by chasing the things of this world to find meaning. You start the day with a profound sense of who you are and how you fit in. I think we have time for a couple questions, and then I have one interesting twist for you. Well, I have several questions that I've received multiple times, so we'll start with those. Okay. Who is our when it says that man was created in our image? Yeah, let me give you a short version of that. This is also very interesting, but here's the short version. The word for God in this account. Now, there's going to be another. Has anybody noticed that there's a, what appears to be a second creation account in chapter 2? Yeah, we'll come back to that in the next lesson. I want to talk to you about that. But in this account, in this story, in chapter 1, the Hebrew word that's used is Elohim. It's a plural word, and it literally means gods. But it's always plural, everywhere you see in the Bible. It's one of those words that, it, and it's always translated singular, and it's got a singular verb with it. It's just one of those weird grammatical things. So some people think when he says our, it's sort of like the editorial we, because the word for God is plural. It's not meaning, oh, there are a bunch of gods here. It's just a plural word, and so we and our would go with it. So think of it as the editorial we. Second point of view, you get to choose between three tonight. Second point of view, it's God and the angels. Some think, because you notice nowhere in here does it say when God created the angels, right? And so theory is, is he created the angels before he did this. And so he's speaking and he said, let's create God and create man in our image. Somehow the angels are also created in the image of God. So that's, a, that's an idea. And then the third idea, which Jews don't believe, Christians like this idea, is that he's talking about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the we, the three that are one. So that's another idea of why that word might be our instead of my image. 
So those are three ideas to choose from. So where do Christians believe that God comes from, and does Genesis deal with that? Yeah, God, uh, Christians understand God to literally be the pre-existent being, the necessarily, as philosophers would call it, the necessary being. In other words, God has always existed and must exist. And let me just remind you, you say, oh, well, that's a very religious thought. Actually, it's not. 50 years ago, what did scientists think about the universe? It has always existed. Very comfortable with that. In fact, that causes far fewer problems than the Big Bang. Christians understand God as being necessarily pre-existent. It is his nature that he is eternal. So that's, that's where they think God came from. He didn't come from, he is. Remember, God, when God answers, who will I say? I am. I will be. I was. And then in Revelation, you're going to see, you know, the, the first and the last and everything in between. You know, you get this idea of God is the eternal continuity. So that's a Christian idea, is that God is not a created thing. The Big Bang Theory explains the creation of the universe, all of the planets, and our world. It theorizes how they might have come about, yeah. And it's interesting. Does Genesis explain that as well, or just our planet? Yeah, does Genesis explain how everything else came about? Only by lumping it in as God created the heavens and the earth. And they're kind of like, yeah, and there's a big and big and big and big and other things out there, but that's not very important. Let me get on to what's really important. Really, that's kind of what Genesis is like. Yeah, that's, that's so good. It's like you and I, if you said, Terry, how was your golf round? I'd say, oh, it was great. I hit this shot on number 14 that was beautiful, and I made this putt on number 18. That's pretty much all I have to say. I hit 90-some other shots as well. I just don't need to tell you about those. I thought I'd just tell you about the two that were good. Right? We always do that. That's Genesis. It says, I'm going to tell you what's really important here. And consequently, there's not nearly as much science as you would like. There's all the theology you could ask for. But you know what? When you and I just sit down and we read Genesis chapter 1, we don't read it for its theology. We say, okay, what do you want to tell me about the world? Wrong. What do you want to tell me about God? And then all of a sudden it explodes in front of us. Oh, my goodness, I have everything to tell you about God. There's a God who's real. There's a God who creates order. There's a God who is the source of harmony. And this very God wants to communicate with you and me and has communicated with us, and he made you to be special. And you go, whoa, Genesis is packed with information. We just read it the wrong way. Let me leave you with one interesting thought. This is from uh, the ancient Jewish sages, how they looked at the book of Genesis. The first letter of the first book of the Bible. First letter is a B. It's called Beit. It's the, it's the second letter, like us, A, B, C. It's Aleph, Beit. It's the second letter, and it's a B. It's a Beit. And they asked themselves this question. They said, why does the book of Genesis begin with a Beit, with that letter? And one of the reasons that I think is very interesting is that letter, Hebrews read right to left. So that letter's closed off on three sides, and it's open toward the front, because Hebrew goes to the left. It's open toward the front. And they understood that as saying, literally, visually, graphically, the story begins closed off everywhere and open to the future. And they said, God started this book with that letter to say, what happened before is not as important. You look toward the future. You have a future, and this story is all about your future. That's just a cool idea. 
I could say that about the gospel. The gospels are not about who you used to be. It's not about what all the problems you have. It says, this is about your future. I have a plan for you. I have a future for you. The second question they asked about this that I think is kind of interesting and applies to us a little bit too is it really bothered them that God started everything in the beginning with the second letter of the alphabet. Why couldn't he have started it with the first letter? There are all kinds of good words you could have thrown in there to start this story that began with an A instead of a B. And they decided that God did that intentionally too because you know what? Sometimes the beginning doesn't start at the beginning. And you know that's really true for you and me too. You might look at the theology of Genesis and you might say, you know what? I have not lived my life like I believe that was true. That I, I have not really believed Genesis 1. That God is real. That he created me finely tuned and intends harmony for me. That he cares about me. That I'm unique and that I matter and that I have a future. You may say, I have not lived my life like I really believe that. And the Jews, Jewish sages would say this. God started it with the second letter to let you know. You can begin there. Never too late to start. And so that's my challenge for you, is I want you to, to believe Genesis chapter 1. We'll argue all week about young earth and old earth and everything in between, but read it and believe what it says about God and about you, and that will make a difference. You say that to yourself every morning. It will make a huge difference in how you live your life. So when you come back here next week, you're going to be smiling, you're going to be peaceful, you're going to be saying to yourself, God loves me, God made me, I am unique, I have a purpose, and the future is open. That's what you're going to look like. And then I'm going to tell you the second part of the story, which is the trouble in paradise part. But that's the part that you believe. It is probably the most violent disagreement that you actually have with the world. The most violent disagreement you as a Christian have with the world is not whether the earth is young or old, it's not whether God created it or not. Actually, you have a more fundamental and violent disagreement with the world than that. And that's what I'm going to tell you about next time. I'll see you next week.